Hi there, welcome back to the podcast. This is David Leibovitz, and I've got a special guest today, one I've been very anxious to have on for quite a while, ever since I heard about his latest book. And it finally landed in my mailbox, I was going to say inbox, but I actually have an actual copy of it. Today's guest is John Bonet, and if you're just following along and you want to see show notes and links to his book, links to his website, or I should say books, you can go to my newsletter at davidlebovitz.substack.com, or John has a website too. It's johnbonet.com, yeah. and that's J-O-N without an H. No H. But we'll talk about that, and then I'll, I'll put that dash, on. Yeah. <laughs> You're in France. You have a yeah. lot of style, and you have an accent in your name. I'm very jealous. <laughs> How are you? I'm good. I'm good. How are you? Good. I was, when you walked in the door, we're here in my kitchen here in Paris, my kitchen apartment, I should say. The first thing I said after I saw your book, I said, when you walked in, I was like, you must be like relieved because this book is monumental. And I mean that in a good way. And it's amazing, actually. The book is called The New French Wine. It's actually a pair of books. The first one's called The Narrative, which I'm reading. I've got my bookmark in there. And I skipped ahead to one part. All good. But <laughs> I'm actually reading it. it, 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 it no, yeah, I mean, <laughs> it's taken me a while. It's very rich because I le- I'm learning all this stuff, which is amazing. I'm, I'll use the word amazing probably in the next hour or so. Um, <laughs> but the second volume is about the producers, which I'm going to be reading next when I'm done with this, which will probably be in 2024. Yeah, exactly. Um, but the book is huge. Yeah. <laughs> Somebody told me the book was 800,000 words. Uh, not quite that much. It's somewhere a little shy of, I think, 600,000. Okay, well, that's a lot. Yeah, I mean, it's, you should, it's still a lot. Yeah, a regular cookbook, for example, for people that are just listening in, usually about 100,000 words is kind of normal. So your book is super normal, I should yeah. say. <laughs> so you were the wine editor and the critic for the San Francisco Chronicle in San Francisco. I was. And you also were a senior editor for Punch, which is the online uh, drinks, I guess, drinks, spirits, magazine, would yeah. you call it? Which is a great website for great resource. And now you work for Resi. You're the online editor? Managing editor. Yeah. Okay. There's a lot of little, well, it's, you know, okay. <laughs> media titles. Like. So when I need, when next time I go to New York, can you get me into all the hot restaurants? Uh, I, can, I, can, I, can, I can send an email probably in vain. Yeah. <laughs> no, that's okay. I'm sure you get that all the time. Yeah. I was like, can you get me into, I don't know what the hot restaurants are. It changes every yeah. six months, but you wrote a book. Actually, the reason I the, the reason I know of you is because our publisher, Ten Speed Press, sent me a book you wrote called "The New Wine Rules." Yeah, and it was a short sort of a little smaller book, than this one, a smaller book. But then you wrote the New California Wine Rules, which are smaller books, but they're actually they're, they're full of essential information. So, what made you decide to write this giant book that, once again, I heard took you ten years to write? Uh, eight years, but okay, but with you know. What's, what's Great. two, what's two With years weekends off. Friends. Yeah. <laughs> um, but uh, what made me do it? Um, foolishness, clearly. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, no, I... I disagree, but go ahead. But so this actually came after the first book, The New California Wine. And I was in Oakland drinking with my editor, as one does, Emily Timberlake. Okay. Yeah, everyone always drinks with her. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so this is why she's doing cocktail books now. It's like... She's found, you know, she found her niche. Um, yeah, so we were probably a glass of, or two of Gamay too far in. And I knew I wanted to do something to follow California. I'd been thinking sort of about the old world, the quote-unquote old world, 
and how you would counterbalance sort of what was happening on the West Coast with things that were happening elsewhere in the world. And she, you know, managed to hone that down to France. And she was like, yeah, what about, what about a book on France? And I was like, sure, great. We're drinking some French wine. Great idea. You know, and then the next morning you wake up and you sort of think, what have I done? There's an email in your mail. But in the end, it really, you know, I mean, as we talked through it and, and put the proposal together and signed the contract and everything, like, it became clear that, A, it had been quite a while since there was sort of a, a deep dive on French wine. And B, you know, even at that point, I knew there was a lot of stuff happening. Mm -hmm. uh, what I would discover eventually is that what I thought was sort of the avant-garde and, you know, the quote-unquote new when we were spitballing it um, was such a small sliver of what was actually going on. Hence the, you know, 900-page book, you know, oh. eight years later. <laughs> Well, going backwards yeah. just a moment there, when you said you don't really know what possessed you to do the book, what I think possessed you was that something happened in the world of French wine in the last 20 years, as you mentioned in the book. And it's a little hard to define, but the subtitle of the book is Redefining the World's Greatest Wine Culture. And there's a lot in that phrase. And I put a copy of your book on my Instagram and a couple or one woman maybe or a person said, does it need redefining? almost like you were insulting it, but you're not. And you're actually, you are, it's, it needed to be redefined. And why is that? And it is, why is it also the world's greatest sure. wine culture? So, you got two like, quick let's, double let's, barrel let's, questions. Let's start with, let's start with <laughs> the easy part first. Okay. So world's greatest wine culture, I, I will and do stand behind and, you know, inevitably someone who's like a really huge Italophile or, mm -hmm. you know, you know, stand up and but we and, have good wines and you yeah, know, yeah, and and, and nobody disputes this. And yeah. you know, it's you know, there there are many places to get good wine. The reason I would argue that it is ultimately the North Star, which is what I call it in the book, is that if you look at any other wine culture, old world or new world, inevitably they look to France as their reference. Mm -hmm. Which is to say, I mean, you know, there, there's hundreds of indigenous Italian grapes and. You know, there's now been, I think, this this renaissance of really finding expressions of Italy that are indigenously Italian. Mm -hmm. But if you look at how much of Italian wine culture and whether, you know, it could be San Leonardo with pure Merlot from, you know, the foothills of the Alps. It could be Pinot Grigio, which is literally just Pinot Gris, mm -hmm. uh, which came out of uh, not just Pinot, Pinot Gris, but Pinot Noir, Pinot Nero being brought to the Veneto and to Eastern Italy, you know, 200 odd years ago. Like, so that's Italy, but Spain and Rioja and their weird obsession with Bordeaux, uh, California, and the fact that, you know, what, what they brought over was ultimately Cabernet, Sauvignon mm -hmm. Blanc. I mean, lots and lots of European varieties, but anywhere you look, I mean, could be Australia in the 1840s with bringing over cuttings of Syrah, which would become Shiraz. Like the benchmark that pioneers anywhere else in the world have used is France. And, yeah. and, and look, I mean, it's, you know, there are many things the French do not have a lock on, but I think mm -hmm. it's safe to say that wine culture is one that they've really been formative in. This is not a knock on anyone else, but like, there's a reason that everyone uses Bordeaux and Burgundy for the most part as their, as their benchmarks. Well, as a baker, yeah. like everything is sort of, not everything I should say, but a lot of things are rooted 
in French techniques. Yeah. And the French do have these long-standing traditions of pastry making, cooking, and other cultures do too, but just the, so I guess I should say the Western world has kind of adopted a lot of French techniques. And it seems like ditto with wine, but or, I- Or for better or worse, mm -hmm. uh, you know, when, when the French, and that, and that becomes an important, an important element, which at least partly captured in the book, is all of the great things that the French have done have been copied. All of the really dumb things that the French have done have also largely been copied. Mm -hmm. So when Bordeaux started using sorting tables, uh, then, you know, suddenly everyone else did. When What's Bordeaux a sorting started. table? A sorting table is uh, usually sort of a moving, like, conveyor belt. Mm -hmm. and, uh, you put the grapes on, you can kind of sort out the ones that aren't quite good okay. enough. Okay. Is that um, bad? Uh, no, okay. it's, I mean, honestly, it is a very good um, technique for quality because it used to just be right. pick all the grapes, throw them all in the okay. bat, and, okay. you know, got what you got. Uh, <laughs> and so literally the sorting table was pretty rudimentary notion of like, well, maybe we should take the really crappy okay. grapes out so we'll make some better wine, which again, really only dates to maybe the late 70s, certainly mm -hmm. in Bordeaux. I think Margot, Chateau Margot was like the first one to really use it in a significant way. But, you know, it's one of those things. So it started in Bordeaux, got copied everywhere else. New Oak, mm -hmm. it's necessarily get started in Bordeaux, but like, you know, it became sort of a mark of prestige and then everyone else wanted to use New Oak. So like when Bordeaux used must concentrators, then everyone else wanted to use mm -hmm. must. So it's, you know, it, it, it's, it's interesting because there is often this tendency to copy the French even when they're making bad choices, mm -hmm. which the is French copy, I would say, which is surpassed yeah, another, by, yeah. by the French then trying to chase fashion often from, from yeah. California, which uh -huh. was this interesting mirror when I was working on this book to look at how all of the criticisms that I had leveled at California one were really in intertwined with some of the dumber things that the French had done. Uh -huh. What are some of the dumber things the French have done? So, I mean, the perfect example of this is um, how much time you got. Um, the perfect example of this is what's Jerry called, Lewis. No. Yeah. <laughs> no, it's just yeah. Jerry Lewis. Um, in Burgundy, what's called premature oxidation of the white wines. And so this was something that started really, say, early to mid 90s. People are still debating exactly what it was. Was it changes in the farming? Was it, you know, like an excess of nitrogen in the soil? Was it too little sulfur? Was it changing corks? Was it, you know, like there's all these things. Where I sort of land on the book is that it had a lot to do with the very sort of sensitive handling of grape juice mm -hmm. that sort of overly coddled it. It's like, it's like helicopter parenting mm -hmm. um, where, you know, very gentle presses and tried to protect everything from oxygen beforehand. And the problem, okay. of course, when you're making wine, which people are now realizing is, and you know, sort of the wisdom of the patent, I'm sure baking has exact analogs for this. Like there used to be that you just kind of beat the grape juice up because you didn't mm -hmm. have any other choice. Like mm -hmm. you picked it and I mean, um, who is it? Uh, it was Bruno Claire in, in Marcinet, which is all the way at the north end of the Cote d'Or, uh, was talking about how his grandfather had to pick Chardonnay and Saltonnay, which is all the way in the south of the Cote d'Or. And that's maybe 30, 35 kilometers. It's not a ton of distance, but if you were- We're still it, in Burgundy. We're in Burgundy, but if you're taking it by, if you're like <laughs> taking it by horse or you're taking it by like truck in the 1930s, it's gonna take a while. And so the Chardonnay that was, you know, lovely when it was picked mm -hmm. down south would be kind of muddy and blackish by the time- By the time it arrived. By the time okay. it arrived. But the thing is that 
what that does or what that did and, and all manners of it is it oxidizes the most volatile components in the wine. Mm -hmm. So the things that are going to oxidize and make the wine sort of die early, mm -hmm. if you oxidize them before you ferment it, then they tend to drop out and there's other ways to do it. But you, you know, it's now become this deliberate part of white winemaking in Burgundy that you, what they call brown the juice. You, mm -hmm. you let it oxidize beforehand and then fermentation precipitates out the volatile stuff and what's okay. left is really lovely. This was obvious to people when they just had rickety presses, you know, basket presses mm. that let lots of air in. And, and then technology came with its quote unquote solutions and everything mm. was gentle. And so this happened. But the thing that, that tied it all together was that what the Burgundians were really doing was trying to make California Chardonnay. <laughs> like, you know, like Burg white Burgundies were like hard, they were angular, they were very high acid, they, mm -hmm. you had to like age them to drink them. And suddenly in the marketplace, they were being, their competition were these very rich, generous, I mean, the, the, the things we know, <laughs> Moth California Chardonnay yeah. were, but you know, oaky and buttery. Yes, and, yes. And I've had a lot less, of that. Yeah. Yes. So living so, in California. Right. During so, the, during yeah. the 90s. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, but the, the thing that's crazy is like, so, so here's Burgundy. Here's literally the birthplace of mm -hmm. Chardonnay as we know it. And what they're trying to do is copy this. Something more American style. Yeah. It's like they, you know, they have the roles, but they want the mustache. Right. So your book is very opinionated, but as someone who also writes about France, it's good to be opinionated. You but can't you, be as opinionated as the French. As the French, right, right, right. And you can't complain about things. As, people say, you complain. It's like, it's very French to yeah. complain. It's not considered a fault. It means you're exigent or you're discerning. But you talk in the book a lot about cultural shifts in France over the last 20 years. You talk about the, I think you call it commercial cynicism of certain winemaking regions. I'm just going to shout out the names, Bordeaux and Provence. But also you, one of the things I loved about your book, The New French Wine, was that you understand France and all these changes that happened. Because like when I moved here around 2003, it was when those books came out, you know, over, over what, all that, the downfall of French bistros, frozen food, and so forth. And it looked, it was dire. Like yeah. everybody, the food was not good. And you mentioned in your book a little bit, of, you know, the countryside. We'll talk about that, too. <laughs> so what happened in France? You said the last 20 years are really, have been really important, big changes in the French wine world. And how do they reflect, like, what happened in France and what's happening now and in the brief future, short future. Sure. Because we don't know what the long future is. <laughs> <laughs> so there's, I mean, you know better than me, there's a lot of threads of this. Mm -hmm. In terms of what has happened, is happening in France, is, is this somewhat painful shift, maybe being dragged into the new Europe, which is to say that the economy has changed, you know, Macron and even before, but really like, there's an understanding that there has to be a tech-driven economy, it has to be smart manufacturing, like agriculture is going to have to focus on higher quality agriculture, which is why sustainability is starting to take hold in a very small way. But like, yeah. you know, it's smaller I mean, than some people might think. Yeah. Yeah. But the change that sort of lies under all that is the real death, I guess you could say, but I would say transformation of the French countryside, mm -hmm. which is to say that all of the cliches that used to be true and have outlived them themselves about sort of the greatness of the, uh, mm -hmm. the like countryside life. 
Yeah, the, uh, the auberge on the side of the road yeah. where they were making, they were getting the ingredients. Yeah, grandma's in the kitchen. And, and, yeah, and yeah. the kids were making bread. Because I've often talked about this when I write about France. I say, you know, in the countryside, it's hard to get things like good bread. They're like, why? And I'm like, well, young people actually don't aspire. It's not like America where they, you know, it's hard to compare the two countries. I should probably back up and say, it's not like other places where like young people go, I really want to bake bread. And the, the young people that do bake bread in France probably want to come to Paris or a city where people are going to buy it rather than the countryside yep. where they're not. And there's like bake. anyone to date. And, you know, there's yeah. like more than one little bar to Bach where they can yeah. like see the same poor people and drink yeah. desperados with yeah. them. Yeah, which yeah. is be- tequila flavored tequila beer. <laughs> beer. But it's interesting, you know, because also people are very cost conscious yeah. and they're not going to want to pay, you know, five euros for a loaf of bread. They're going to want to pay a euro 30 and so forth. Yeah. And it's still, to some extent, like the, you know, baguette prices are regulated. And so, you know, mm-hmm. any, anyone who wonders why it's hard to get good bread in the countryside has clearly never worked in a boulangerie uh, and thought about yeah. what it means to, like, be up at three or four in the morning. In, I know. did that one night yeah. at Acme Bakery in Berkeley. I was like, I want to work in a ba- bread bakery. I did it one night. I was like, I got it. <laughs> got it. Yeah. Um, so yeah, but it's I mean, and the thing is that it extends to 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 really almost everything in the countryside, and, and but so, gen- generally there was like a downfall in yeah. France, and it's not it was just it was noted, and the wine world talk so a little bit about so 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 that that and, that and how they decided to what happened to change things that was really okay. that was really the interesting thing, which is and I I think I described it in the in the first chapter of the book, it took me like three or four years to really figure this yeah. out. And you did it really well. I, I really, I'm very impressed by your book. Oh, screeching to the side of the road in Cahors to like have my eureka moment mm-hmm. right in yeah. my notebook. Which, But what really happened was that this battle that had been going on for at least 120, 130 years in mm-hmm. France between quality and quantity in mm-hmm. French wine, like was finally decided in favor of quality. And that was decided... Uh, but so, people always, I mean, yeah. just to the casual listener, they're going, well, France was always concerned with quality. Sure. Well, a very small portion of France was very concerned okay. with quality. So who was concerned with quality and who wasn't? So if you were a, a very, if you were a good producer in a good appellation, mm-hmm. like, I mean, if you were in Merceau in, in Burgundy, for instance, or yeah. even, you know, if you were in Bouvray, let's, well, once upon a time in Bouvray. If you're in Montnouy, which is across the river right. from Bouvray, you actually were very concerned because you never had the name recognition. Okay, you couldn't use the name. Well, yeah. France has all these yeah. laws, arcane laws, and they're sort of... Yeah. And, and if, you're, if you're producing quality wine, you have an, an AOC, an Appellation d'Origine Contrôlée, which is also for cheese and grains and lots of other things. But you have very strict rules that you have to follow. And the intention of the AOCs originally was the prevention of fraud. What they right. became over time was this very political marketing system where once you had the AOC, you could, you could, you didn't have to, but you could get very lazy. And so that's why I say the better producers in the good AOCs were concerned with quality. So I should probably just intersert it. Yeah. For people that don't know, AOC is like an appellation in France and something like Brie de Meaux, which is a cheese. It has to be raw milk. It has to be from this specific region. It has to be aged like six to eight weeks and, yeah, where Comte, like, you know, has to 
certain quality of milk, certain certain geographic origin. There's different levels of aging. Yeah. There's so very specific. Yeah. yeah. Would you know? I mean, most of the most of the sort of well-known French cheeses, most of the well-known French wines, but even things like pre-lentils, yeah. which are delicious. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but but part of it is like the reason that there that there is uniform quality is that there's very strict rules for them. Right. Well, a lot of it was to protect, you know, the French like rules, as you know, they also like breaking rules. So I think they had to come up with these things so people weren't breaking the rules. But rules often become shackles, as one journalist said. She was talking about authenticity once, and I was reading what she wrote, and she said, authenticity is great, but it shouldn't like chain us down. And the way you talk about the evolution of wine, you talk about patrimoine in France. Yeah. Which, which is, is a very, very French notion. It's a very French. Can you explain what yeah. that is? So, so patrimoine, like the, I mean, I guess people sometimes translate it as history, sometimes translate it as patrimony. But I think that in the Anglo-Saxon world, like neither of those things really have the resonance. And it, it, to me, at least in, in French, what it brings with it is this communal sense of cultural ownership. Like, this is part of tradition and part of the fabric of French culture. Mm -hmm. And so... History yeah, is a tradition. Exactly. Yeah. So, so it's tradition, but it's the sense that part of your role as someone carrying it forward is you have to honor the tradition, mm -hmm. which, of course, as all things, is honored in being broken, like you said. Yeah. Uh, but, yeah. <laughs> but so with wine, so like I said, there was a sense of quality, but there was also... I mean, wine really has been a key agricultural staple in France and one of the ways that if you were in the countryside, you could reasonably make a living. And this, this goes back to like the mid 19th century, mm -hmm. if not before, really to just after the revolution where all of France, I mean, probably 2 million hectares worth mm -hmm. of land was in vineyard versus now is about 700,000. So there's actually less land in vineyard in France today than there has been since the revolution. Well, you mentioned that they're tearing up yeah. Um, vineyards in places like Bordeaux. Why is that? Yeah, I have thousands of hectares in Bordeaux. Right now, there's like a middle of a, a vine pull scheme because inevitably it's not the like cheap, bad vineyards that get pulled up. It's old vines and whatever. But there's just frankly too much vineyard in Bordeaux for the amount of wine that can be produced and sold. And okay. there's too, there's just, there's, there's too many farmers who fundamentally can't make a living anymore because they weren't producing high quality wine. They were like mm -hmm. selling their grapes to the co-op or selling them to, you know, big negotiants or whatever and making lo relatively low quality wine. And there's just, Bordeaux is a good example. Yeah. There's not a market, there's not a big enough market for cheap Bordeaux to justify the 130,000 hectares of vines. Okay, because a lot, I go to a lot of dinner parties in France and there's a lot of cheap Bordeaux. Yeah, I mean, cheap Bordeaux's not going anywhere. Okay. But, but it's, when I say cheap, I mean yeah. like four euros a bottle, five euros a bottle. Yeah, and I should say like for what that is, I mean, it's now, I mean, the French are, are very obsessed with what they call the Bordeaux bashing. But, oh, they are? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Because they think it's, I mean, you know, it, it used to be that the Americans were Bordeaux bashing and now yeah. the French are Bordeaux bashing. Oh, they, oh, they are doing it. So the, the Bordelais are always complaining about how the French, ah. the rest of France hates them. It's like, well, you kind of brought this on yourself. But the thing is that there is actually astonishingly good quality wine being made for mm -hmm. astonishingly little money in Bordeaux. And even at four or five euros a bottle, you can go to Super U or Monoprix or whatever. Supermarket chains. Yeah, yeah. Whatever, whatever, Leclerc, whatever your supermarket of, or hypermarché of choice uh -huh. is. And you can find like good organic 
Bordeaux for five or six euros a bottle. It's not like, it's not going to change your life, Mm -hmm. but it's decent quality wine. But the thing is that that's what not only France, but much of the world drank when there were a lot fewer countries producing wine. Uh But the world doesn't need cheap wine from France anymore because Australia is there to well, undercut it or Argentina well, you said or in your Spain. Book, other yeah. people actually do it better than France. Or they do it cheaper. Cheaper. Yeah. Yeah. And so Portugal. Yeah. So fundamentally. And I love Portugal. Yeah. I mean, Not an insult. Yeah. No, it fundamentally, like it just has become economically non-viable for a lot of farmers, a lot of grape growers and a lot of France to keep growing grapes to make cheap wine. Mm-hmm. And so that in some ways to me is, is what's behind what I see as a quality revolution, uh, which is not just like the known wines and the, the known appellations, okay. but very, very talented people who are also making, and we talk about this in more detail, are making Van de France, which was traditionally like the lowest of the low. It was mm. like, you know, it was, it was just like a the label. cheapest what does that table mean? wine. Like, when it yeah. says Van de France, it's just... It means, it means basically that you like could, couldn't get any other label. Okay, uh, <laughs> but you could say it was French. You know, it's like when you 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 fail out of college and then you fail out of Botech and then you <laughs> oh. fail out of everything else, like at the bottom. It's Van der France. It's Van der France. But, and this is the exact same thing that happened. VDF. Yeah, okay. uh, and it used to be VDT, Van der Table. But it, this is the exact same thing that happened in Tuscany in the 60s and early 70s with the quote-unquote super Tuscans was these weren't the failures. It was very, very talented producers, often in very good appellations, who either, to your point about rules, the yeah. appellations actually require a tasting of your wines, yes. which, you know, basically... And they can decide if your wine doesn't and, get released. Yeah, and maybe... What if they don't like you? Well, exactly. Maybe yeah. you pissed off your neighbor. Yeah. Maybe, you when know... This, like, you know, we're talking about country people, yeah. which, you know... Yeah, I mean, clearly no, no score was ever settled by, okay. you know, um, <laughs> by uh, someone on, a, on an appellation <laughs> tasting committee. But so you'd see, I mean, this is a story that would repeat itself dozens and dozens of times is, you know, could have been local beefs. It could have been that they didn't think the Appalachian rules really suited them. It could have been that there was too much chemical farming, whatever it was, that more and more producers were moving, usually because they, out of sort of sadness and frustration, out of the Appalachians into Van de France. Mm -hmm. And so this, this notion that the French could enforce quality hierarchy with this old you know, system, system that was just that, like yeah. wasn't really working because you mentioned there was a great quote in your book about the last 20 years of wine you said the future of french wine is about improving upon the past repairing the wrongs of recent decades and the wrongs of once again going back to the cuisine there was a like what changed when I moved here, I was having some trouble. I was like, well, the ingredients aren't as good as I thought, and restaurants weren't so good. And people were like, no, everything's great in France, yeah. especially the French. They were like, everything's perfect here. Yeah. Michelin has declared it so. Yes. And then they kind of saw what was happening, and there was a correction. And tell me a little about the correction in terms of wine and food, because I like the parallel. Because it really, something happened in the last, I, I want to say seven years, but... We can say 10 since you said that in your yeah, book. A decade-ish. Okay. Uh, COVID is yeah. made, means you have to... We lost like, three years. Yeah. yeah. So it's 10 years. Yeah. So I, I think some of it was, in terms of food sourcing, it was, I mean, not that the French haven't always done farm to table, but I think it was this notion that producers of whatever could be cheese, you know, milk, vegetables, um, were going back and really looking at beginning to end 
sourcing and how to make or grow a great quality product all over mm-hmm. again by sort of tossing out all of, and, and again, this is, this is a direct parallel with wine, tossing out essentially the given wisdom of approximately 1945 to like mm-hmm. 1990, let's say, yeah. maybe even more. But essentially starting right after World War II in wine, but in, in all parts of French agriculture, the French government really funded a, a very willful campaign to rebuild the French agricultural system. The problem was this was based almost entirely on chemical farming, um, yield maximization, very limited number, uh, sort of a very significant shrinking of the genetic pool of anything, of, you know, grape clones, of tomato varieties, whatever it was. Hot house, things that look like artisan tomatoes at the market. And everyone's like, ooh, look, it's like, they don't have any flavor. Yeah, And, and, and so, I mean, and literally like, government-funded agricultural advisors would sort of go throughout the the countryside to quote-unquote advise farmers, and the advice was usually buy these 10 products from the companies who are actually funding what I do, and you'll never have to, you'll never till the ground again, Mm because this miracle roundup is going to just take care of it all for you. And it would Um, big time. I mean, there's a lot of pesticide use in French wine. Somebody told me, actually, wine is one of the most heavily pesticide-laden products? Yep. Is that true? Um, yes and no. I mean, you've I been mean, there, you've been to produce. Yeah, I mean, you know, I mean, the, the, the traits elements that are there are certainly there. It's, you know, debatable as to like how much they're truly wreaking havoc, but a lifetime of drinking wine that, you know, has pesticide residue probably isn't doing anyone right. a, a ton of good. It is interesting how fast wine is actually also transforming out of synthetic agriculture mm-hmm. um, and the use of pesticides. And you look like, I mean, Bordeaux is, I think, in five years moved from something like 15 to 30% or 33% of the vineyards are now certified organic. Well, I heard because a lot of them were realizing they were killing things like natural yeast, which you need in wine. Well, and we could add yeast, but... That, that's some of it. You're making it's, a it's, face. His John's shoulders just went up to his no, ears. It's, it's, <laughs> it's, 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 I mean, okay. yes, there's that. I don't know that that, that they were like... I mean, I don't think the Bordelais were like, yes, we're killing the natural yeast. And that's why I think it's more that, I mean, Bordeaux specifically, there was a documentary a few years ago that showed exactly how bad pesticide use was. And it focused on one particular property in Sauterne that- I uh, love Sauterne. Yes. Well- Okay. That was right next to a school that became a, a very- significant cancer cluster for child childhood cancers oh, and, okay. and in the, this was like um tv too and so i mean the bordelais have been sort of round i mean when i talk about mm. bordeaux bashing the bordelais have been roundly humiliated for their pesticide use so some of this is just like they realize since nobody wants to drink the wine anymore that maybe they should uh-huh. try this organics thing that seems to be mm-hmm. they can make a little more money and also mm-hmm. not be the villains of the entire country right. And so I think that there's this sense that what's happening now, and to your point, also in the food world, is getting past sort of the triage agriculture of the post-war years mm-hmm. and realizing that what actually was you know, made France great in all of the important cultural ways was true artisanship. Well, I always think the way, you know, I used to say this in France, the first step to changing things is recognizing there's a problem. Yeah. 
And that's, that's a know, hard thing in France. In France, yes. <laughs> Auto reflection. But, you know, and then I used to be interviewed and people would get upset with me until I told them, I said, you know, well, I worked in a restaurant in Northern California and we sort of copied France. It was about, you know, Chez Panisse was based on this French idea of going to the markets and buying all these, this produce and serving local things and so forth. And we, America had lost all that. And the French were losing it too. And then they saw what happened and now they're gaining it. And there's all these amazing like small produce stores. Yeah. I mean, you live here part-time and it's amazing. Like there's like little tiny stores and they have beautiful, pro like right now it's spring and there's beautiful cherries and apricots. But speaking of Bordeaux, I asked you um, maybe to bring a bottle of wine that might surprise me yeah. because I have a thing about red Bordeaux. I've had, I have a trouble with a lot of the tannins and the wines. And the sort of a generation in France, I think that's very luxurious. And I have trouble because it makes me, I can't sleep. Fair. And a friend of mine, I don't know if you know Michael Sullivan, uh, mm -hmm. Bone Imports, he said, drink a lot of water with it. And that's one way to reduce True. the tannins. We sidestepped that because I brought white Bordeaux. Which okay, well, why don't even, you... Even, even more unfashionable than red Bordeaux. Well, you know, uh, <laughs> my friend Margot, who has the bar Combat, I was telling her once how I like Pomo de Normandy, and I said, which is like an apple cider, like it's like an apple juice and apple brandy based aperitif. And I was like, no one drinks it. She goes, that's why you should drink it because it, when it's not cool, exactly. and it's cool. Yeah. So you brought something not cool. Yeah. Um, and I'm going to let you open it. Yeah. So this is, and I was sort of happy to find it because I don't actually see it in Paris very often. This is from a producer on the right bank of Bordeaux in the Bly area, which is not in any way the high rent district. Okay. Um, this is the Hubert family, uh, Rachel Hubert and her family. She's sort of the daughter who's taken over. But they are, for me at least, very high quality. They make an astonishingly good sort of basic red Bordeaux. But they also like everything is farmed in biodynamics and they have amphorae and, mm -hmm. you know, okay. all the cool kids. Amphorae is like, uh, like, like I don't know. It's a clay jug. Big wine jugs, yeah. Let's make sure that it's... Yeah. Anyway, so the, yeah, they use all the cool kid things and they would functionally be considered natural yeah. wine if... I can smell the wine. I'm yeah. about a foot away from it. Yeah. And it has a wonderful smell. It's yeah. It's like, oh. Anyway, so they do lots of stuff. They are just to piss off their neighbors to the point of... Mm. Um, yeah. Of Appalachians, they um, this oh, is in a, a burgundy-shaped bottle, so it's sort of the tapered I bottle. Yeah. I never would have bought this. Like if I was at a store, yeah. Just out of curiosity, how much is this? Is it very I think this was eighteen euros? Okay, because yeah. wine is like cheap in France. Yeah. like for what in yeah. which is actually not far off from what it costs me in the U.S. Yeah. So it's not an expensive wine. Their red is like fifteen, sixteen dollars, and so this is like. Equal parts Sauvignon Blanc and Sauvignon and a little uh, Columbard. But just uh, all the things that are lovely about white Bordeaux, which literally nobody drinks. Well, I drink like I mean, Grave yeah. Entre du Mal, yeah. you know, just the sort of like Muscadet, you know, kind of oyster wine, you know. Yeah. I, I was called um, just drinkable stuff. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, so they... Um, mm, it's very good. Yeah, thank you. So it, I, I, you know, love the family, love what they do. And it's just... One of these things where, you know, this isn't even like particularly avant-garde. It's literally very traditional blend for white Bordeaux. But it's got a lot of character. Yeah. You know, I think that we, 
in daily life, we often drink, well, you probably drink better wines than I do, but we often drink sort of just clean white wines that are very minerally and so forth. And it's just, you know, we drink a lot of wine in France, as you know. So we're always drinking wine. It's all lies. Yeah, and you, and you don't always want to have like wines that demand a lot of attention yeah. necessarily. You just want to have something to have with dinner. Um, but this is really good. Like I could, this would be a really good cheese wine. Yeah. Or like some Saint-Jacques or, mm. you know. Or scallops. Like yeah, like yeah. even if you're doing a crudo or, yeah, I mean, oysters. for sure oysters. Right. But yeah, it's, I mean, again, like, it's always weird to me that, again, like, it's a little bit more in the conversation in France, but certainly out of France, white Bordeaux doesn't register for people, which is strange to me because fundamentally the key grape in, in Bordeaux, the key white grape is Sauvignon Blanc. Which it's not Sauvignon. It's not Sémillon. I love Sémillon, yeah. and I love wines like this that are higher percentages of Sémillon. Mm -hmm. The Sémillon sort of has this range of flavors that is sort of, if you think of like the arc of a fig, mm -hmm. like from like very green to sort of very ripe and waxy, mm -hmm. that's the range of flavors okay. in Sémillon. And I like, there's a very textural component. This is why it makes such great Sauterne. Like there's mm -hmm. this very textural component to Sémillon. I have fought and lost the battle over Semillon so many times I can't even okay. count. So in my heart, yes, Semillon, but Semillon Blanc is is a grape that people like. Like, mm -hmm. you know, could be New Zealand, could be Sancerre, which people have an irrational obsession with. Now, people, yeah. some not so good Sancerre. There's some, yeah. Do you, you want to talk about like okay. appellations that have had a jump the shark, like yeah. Sancerre, yeah, yeah, poster child. Yeah, um, it used to be like all Sancerres were pretty good and then things change. But when you wrote the new French wine, your book, and I'm going to say it's amazing, you mentioned that when you set out to write about what was new, you thought you were going to go to all these areas and discover all these new people. And you did go to places like the Jura, which I love, the Languedoc, which I love, not truthfully considered a great wine region. But you discovered there wasn't these sort of outlying areas. Yeah. What was it that you discovered that was really the sort of the... I mean, I think... The, the, what, was, that, what was changing French wine? That was the big thing that I didn't... What was exciting? Yeah, that I didn't expect when I, like, you know, was having my drunken night in Oakland. Um, <laughs> but, you know, I, I literally, I did. Like, when I was started out on the project, I thought, well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go to the Auvergne or I'll, mm -hmm. you know, go up to the mountains or Find somewhere. Find some yeah. family making wine. And, you know, it'll yeah. be in places no one has heard of. It's all sort of off the grid. It's like, you know, a little cohort of crazy natural people in the Ardèche. And, uh -huh. and I did go visit them. I went like went to Valvignere for a couple of days and saw the, the posse there. And all of which is interesting, but like those are, I don't want to say they're side notes, but they are... They're not... They're, 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 they're good grace notes, but yeah. fundamentally the key melody is what's happening in the heart of the great wine region. Well, you said in the book that what was most exciting to you were families, yep. like the kids taking over the parents' job. A lot of women winemakers now, people getting into, just people coming at it from a different point of view, I guess. Yeah, and, and honestly, even, you know, what the French call neo-vigneron, neo-vigneron, like there's folks who are absolutely coming new into regions and finding kind of historically good terroirs, mm -hmm. like in Roussillon, in Bagnol, which was a sweet wine region, mm -hmm. all the way like on the Catalonian border. And Bagnol was one of the great sort of sweet wines of France, probably even less fashionable than White Bordeaux now. Mm -hmm. um, but now there's all of these 
kind of younger vigneron who've gone there to make great dry wines mm -hmm. from, you know, 80 or 100 year old Grenache vines that used to make sweet wine. And they've kind of taken the raw material, taken what is a known and important terroir and just decided to change the rules and do something different. Yeah, have you found, because I know talking to people in the south of France who grow grapes, you know, the climate is changing, it's getting hotter. Because people were sort of joking about this a few years ago, like they're going to start making wine in Brittany and Normandy and pretty soon England. Yep, which they have, are. Have you seen that? Like, is that... Uh, <laughs> well, well English... Yeah, have you seen it, any in Brittany? Um, Let's go you know, it's, it's there, interesting. Normandy. They're, they're um, I think, LVF, L-E-R-V-F, which is the... La Revue de Vin de France, it's like France's biggest wine magazine. Mm -hmm. The current issue has this big, big feature about the winemaking in Normandy and Brittany. Oh, wow. Near okay. Semato, yeah. Okay. Near Rouen. Like, and it's, I mean, it's not People like, don't grow, you don't go past vineyards when you're driving around there. It's no, cows. And cows, salt. apples. Yeah, yeah. Salt. <laughs> yeah. But no, I mean, yeah. it's, you know, it's not like taking over the world, but the climate does sustain it now. Mm -hmm. um, and I don't think that, you know, Let's say Norman wine, because Brittany is complicated only in that there is Breton wine, and it is very well known, and it's Muscadet, which is... Is it good? Muscadet. Have, have you had Breton wine? Outside of Muscadet? Yeah. Is uh, that considered I, Brittany, Muscadet, that region? Effectively. Oh, I, mean, okay. it's, I mean, if you look historically, that was, that was the Breton vineyard. Like, okay. I should probably point out to people, like, Muscadet, people often think it's Muscat, which is sweet. And right. I'm like, no, 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 Muscadet is, is delicious. It's, it's the opposite of sweet. Yeah. It's like... It is as mineral as you get. Yeah. Um, it's made from a grape with a sort of a goofy name. Yeah. Melon de Bourgogne. Except yeah. you can't call it Melon de Bourgogne lest the Burgundians be offended. So now in, in France, it's Melon Bay. Melon, Melon Bay. Yeah. Okay. That was the wine. Yeah. I think I was telling you about it in an email that I had recently somewhere at a restaurant with at Capitan. Yeah. Yes. My friend Matt. Yeah. So it's, I mean, Muscadet is interesting because to me, it is the quintessence of the quality revolution. Okay. So this was, you know, like, I mean, always a lovely wine, but it was like considered sort of a very cheap, very simple mm -hmm. wine. You would have it with oysters. And one of the reasons it's a Breton wine is that it's, it's grown right around the city of Nolte, which is the nexus of the Loire and Brittany. And so like all the great Breton oysters come through Nolte for the most part. Muscadet came through Nolte and that's how it became an oh, oyster this, wine. Okay. I, I, yeah, this, this, this wine is great. Yeah. So the elephant in the room has just woken up. <laughs> and we're going to talk a little bit about natural wine because that's a big subject. Sure. Your, your, if we had a video, you're, you've got a, your face is turning a little red and it's not the wine. <laughs> but I've noticed in the book, you didn't talk too much about it, but it's important. And you talked about like Anjou being a very important region and France being sort of at the forefront of the natural wine movement. So the questions are to you, or the question is, how did this country that's so wrapped up in tradition, patrimoine, become this huge hub for natural wine, which you're now saying has become sort of oddly elitist? And that's why you're also a great writer, because there's this sort of oddly elitist. What does that mean? And tell me your thoughts on natural wine, which is... And luckily, we don't have calling. We like, don't people calling like, in. Yeah, I was like... <laughs> and so sometime next Thursday when we're yeah. done... Um, so I, it took me a long time to figure out how to deal with natural wine in the book. There are a lot of producers who are what would be considered natural, such as you can even define it. Uh, I spent There's no a lot of time, definition of it. Really. Right. I mean, it's, you know, it, I mean, how, how do you have an opinion on something that has no definition, right? Mm -hmm. So, you know, I, 
originally was going to write sort of a very straightforward chapter. This is what natural wine is, and this is what person A thinks and person B thinks, and I just mm-hmm. tossed that because it was not interesting. But also it was, it became important for me, I think, to put natural wine in its actual context mm-hmm. and to explain, to your point, why France really was the origin point. Mm-hmm. And not just like France is the origin point, but how it came to be, because I think that helps to explain both why natural wine is like so popular and has this momentum, and also to your point of oddly elitist. Yeah, amongst it, a young generation. Yes. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting now because the new thing is, well, it's the thing that's democratizing everyone. You know, now you can like go out and go to natural wine bars or like the new nightclubs and mm-hmm. your wine jockey will pour you well, what, whatever they yeah. think is. And, and the thing is like, there, there is this sort of weird sense of taste making around it. But the thing that is odd to me, the thing that I was struggling with, and it's why the actual chapter about natural it's wine. It's going to be volume three. <laughs> uh, I mean, there is a chapter, there's a 7,000 word chapter on natural wine, but okay. you're, you're, you, you're open to it right now. Yes. Okay. Okay. <laughs> uh, I, I was going to say, well, I guess in turn, when I mentioned it was brief in the scope of the, yeah. you know, the <laughs> volume one is 457 yeah. pages. So, um, but it, there's a great picture of all these young people yeah, and they're wearing hoodies. Hanging out at, at, it's at such a natural. Guy Breton's house, like, yeah, it's such a natural wine scene. Primordially hipster, yes. <laughs> but one um, thing, when I was writing Drinking French, I kind of actually avoided the subject of wine because it's such a big subject, but I kind of had to mention natural wine. But I got some flack, you know, I sort of, I, you know, I didn't want to say anything critical because I appreciate a lot of natural wine. But what I found out was a lot of people in the cocktail world like natural wine. Yes. And I think that's because they like, there's all these layers of flavor. It could be funky, it could be fizzy, it could be fruity, it could be acid, where like in regular wine, you don't, the flavor profiles are, you're looking at me funny, the flavor profiles are much more subdued. There's a different set of words and terminology, I guess you could say. Yes. And an attitude. Uh, there is, yeah. Uh, to me, it's, it's much more odd, about the attitude. attitude. And I think that, I think that there is, Cocktail people, but lots of people tune into the fact that, you know, there are elements of natural wine that feel more like kombucha or beer or whatever than wine necessarily. So why can France? Deba- can debate that into the wee hours. But so the story I really wanted to tell in this chapter, aside from sort of, I mean, I wanted to juxtapose sort of the scene that natural wine has become, which is why it opens This it. picture tells everything. Yeah, Page 204. I fought so hard to get that picture in. Oh, really? Yeah. That's my old neighborhood, like yeah. the 11th. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. So really, it starts at La Dieppe Bouteille, which is a big natural wine fair in mm-hmm. Saumur every year. And, you know, me being there, kind of watching Ooh, the scene. Yeah. And Do you wear sunglasses and like a disguise? Nice, you know, it's norm core. Okay. Okay. <laughs> um, and sort of saying this is all interesting, but like for all of the sort of posing going on, like it's a fucking trade fair. Yeah. You know, let's be clear about what mm-hmm. this is. This is a trade fair. So I sort of start there and I bring in some other moments of kind of the scene of natural wine. But then I, I did actually want to go back to the origins, which really, I mean, real origins are like in the 1950s, but the actual origins of like what we talk about now as natural wine started in the early 80s, probably a few blocks away from where we're talking. Mm-hmm. In of, the 11th. In the 11th, the 12th, the 20th. Yeah. 
And it was a number of things. It was sort of some bistro owners and cubbies that were engaging with people like Marcel Lapierre in Beaujolais or the Richaud family in Chiron, or, but people who were like organics using less sulfur, who were focusing on like going back to artisan ways, is what we were saying, at a time when French wine was really being industrialized. And, and I don't even mean that in an abstract way, in the sense that when Mitterrand won, Mm -hmm. The presidency, you know, the Socialist Party was very strongly backed by agricultural co-ops. And so there was a yeah. huge push in the 80s to strengthen the co-ops, increase production, increase yields, you know, all yeah. of the things that inevitably ruin wine, but sort of yeah. any good product. And so this was happening in this backdrop where like capital F, capital W, French wine mm -hmm. was being industrialized. And these were folks who were sort of tilting against that. And they found like-minded bistro owners, whatever, in this neighborhood, more or less. There were a handful. Um, there was a guy named Jean-Pierre Robineau, who now makes wine in Northern Loire, but opened a wine bar, I think, on, on Richard Lenoir called Langevin. But he also, along with a guy named Michel Beton, who anyone who knows French wine is like the big deal wine critic in France, they had founded a magazine called Le Rouge et Le Blanc which mm -hmm. still exists, which was sort of like the first indie French wine magazine. Mm -hmm. And so this sort of movement grew out of literally this neighborhood, like Charlie Hebdo, whose offices are a couple blocks away. Like, so sort of the, the like alt press, a lot mm -hmm. of neo-Marxists, yes. um, this sort of Bobo leftist fringe in yeah. East Paris in the 80s was like getting super into these wines that had like less sulfur and, mm -hmm. you know, Literally, the less sulfur or no sulfur part, and it was often because they wanted to drink more and they thought, not quite correctly, that it would not give them a hangover. Okay. Um, <laughs> noble reasons. Yeah. So, like, that literally was the origin. And then, like, the 90s, it continued and there became more people. And the notion of unsulfured wines started to catalyze. And you saw sort of more bistros, Le Baratin, mm -hmm. which was 1987, up in Belleville. So, these places that are weirdly iconic now... Yeah. And literally the places, the, the neighborhoods wow. where all the natural wine is in Paris and everyone, we all joke about sort of the natural wine of the 11th, like that, it really hasn't moved that far from the origin point. It's just that it's been copied. Well, one thing, out. I was having dinner at a restaurant on the 11th a few weeks ago, and it was next to a very sort of popular natural wine bar. And I noticed these four guys out front and they were like swirling and they had like their phones and their earbuds in and they were all like hanging out with each other. It's like, why are your earbuds in? You're talking to your friends. But they had the pack of cigarettes, the whole, you know, the sneakers, the whole, you know, the French young beard. You know, and they sort of had adopted that, that sort of wine snobbism because I've been around the wine world in a, a bit and, you know, because I worked in restaurants and so forth. And I see what you mean in the book that it's become sort of this elitist thing. And then when they sat down, I could see them. they had the wine decanted and it was a big to-do. And, the, you know, the wine had a, a flip top. What do you call it? What do you call it? With a bottle opener, you open oh, it. Oh, crowd cap. Yeah, and yeah. they decanted it into a carafe. Yeah. Probably because it was like wildly reduced and fucked up and couldn't, probably couldn't drink it otherwise. Just, <laughs> yeah. You know, but you know, it's, I mean, this is the give and take now. It was, like, but it it was kind be, of like yeah. it was, when it was not supposed to be. It was supposed to yeah. be like wine for the people, right. in my view. Yeah, and and that's what, you know, it's funny because, again, it was born out of this kind of anti-commercial, like, neo-Marxist realm and was very much intended to 
to take some of the piss out, the of, piss out of, yeah. of wine. But what's happened now is that it has become fashion and that's fine. Like, mm -hmm. you know, wine is fashion is an analogy I'm always down for, but it is now very much a game of bro-ish one-upsmanship where like oh. you, you see the wines that not, not, I mean, the top burgundies become irrationally expensive, but you look at like these weird little cult producers in the Jura, like Domaine de Miroir, which like those wines go from like 2000 euros a bottle now. In the Jura? Uh, yeah. Oh, and, yeah. And, and like, I like, look, like they're good. I mean, like kind of yeah. like Overlaw, which is sort of the, the original hero of the Jura. I mean, those wines are like, if you're lucky, you'll get them at eight or $900 a bottle. And, Whoa. Okay. You know? Yeah. But you're like, Literally, what wine from anywhere, but certainly from the Jura, can mm -hmm. conceivably be worth two grand. Like, yeah. there's just, you're like, come on. This is, this is like, you know, somebody found the truly limited edition Jordans and, mm -hmm. you know, they're going to keep them in their box forever because they're rimmed with, it's just yeah. like. I mean, I thought like yeah. there's a, these Van Johns that are like 200 euros, which are. Yeah. Well, that, you know, it's, it's something you goes have into to that. age them seven years. Yeah. This is just like. I mean, this is, I don't even know what those wines leave, you know, at seller, but, but it's just the resale market for this, the ineffably. Because cool. Jura wines are a hard sell. Like apparently people not who, anymore. Well, people who don't know, because <laughs> yeah. some of them are not access. Yeah. So before um, we go, I wanted to ask you just for people coming to Paris, what are some of your favorite wine bars? I mean, La Bouvette will always have a place in my heart, mm -hmm. mostly because it's like our dining room. It's like yes. right by our house. Septim Cobb is always there. If you mm -hmm. can, you know, squeeze in. You could take, yeah, take take a can over yeah. and like find a place. They're really for nice there, though. When yeah. you get inside, yeah. they're super nice. Um, it's 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 a lot of fun. There's a relatively new place, again, not far from here on Rue Keller, called Giclet. I was just talking to someone about yeah. that today. And I just, it's very much a similar vibe to Septim Cobb, but maybe a little more chill. The folks who run it really, they know the deep cuts. Mm -hmm. Like they they they, you know, they had wines that I have not really seen in Paris. Otherwise that I'm like, this is, there's actually a Grave and Soterran producer called Claude 19B, Claude 19B. Claude 19B. Mm -hmm. And no one outside of Bordeaux has heard of this guy and no one inside of Bordeaux has heard of him either. And I was like, I saw these wines at Giclet and I was like, all right, you, you guys have done the work. Okay. This, this is impressive. There's a place up in the ninth near Pigalle called 228 Liters that's partly Cave, partly wine bar. Gaius from Champagne and worked in Champagne and he's just got really a remarkable collection of everything, but it's also like giving away too much, but like he always has the new grower in Champagne that no one has quite heard of yet. Okay. And so it's always like fun discovery. Well, Paris is a good place to drink wine. Yeah. Not just because there's so much of it, because there are these wine bars and they're sort of low they're usually reasonable. Like you can go to Septim Wine Cove and get a glass of wine for seven euros. Yeah. And if it's not that great, then it's okay. And they're going to have good wine there, but. Exactly. And I will put in a plug. Uh, it's not really a wine bar, but I truly, I think she is a remarkable talent uh, for Le Saint Sebastien. Oh, Daniela. Um, and Daniela. Yeah. And it's, you know, it's, it's, a, it's in the Obistro. Chris is a remarkable chef, but she's got a remarkable eye for mm -hmm. Sort of natural, not willfully so, but like a very balanced wine list. That, yeah, we've uh, had dinner a few times the last few weeks. And yeah. We've had some really good wines. Yeah. And yeah. she's at Les Saint-Sébastien. Yeah. That was the one typo in my book, because I mentioned it, but I said the Spanish Sebastien with an A, and she's from South America. Yeah. I said, well, I did it for you. I told her. <laughs> she's like, okay, <laughs> thank you. 
Well, John, it was great to talk to you. John Bonnet, B-O-N-N-E. Yeah. And your new book is The New French Wine, Redefining the World's Greatest Wine Culture. And that's one of the great subtitles. It's very hard to subtitle yeah. book. And proof that a good editor is a really, really great saying because mm. the, the subtitle is one of the few things in the book that um, did not in any way come from me. Okay. Um, but I saw it the first time and I was like, loved it. We're not even going to have to discuss this. So it, but it props was, to good editors. Yeah. Was that Emily? Uh, I think it was Emily. I should get her on the podcast. Yeah. <laughs> we'll talk about you and a few other authors who are friends of mine. John, it was great to have you here. Well, Thank you so pleasure. much for being on my podcast. And good luck with your book. Your book is available at bookstores all over the country, the U.S. Um, it's available online at people's favorite or least favorite <laughs> online internet retailers. Local bookstores are great places to buy books. You can always order it, too. It's a double volume, so it's twice yeah. as good. There's a twice lot to read here. Doubles as doorstop. Yeah, and this is literally, I've been reading it. It's a very good value because I've been reading it for like two weeks, and I'm only on page 21. So, yeah. <laughs> so it's like, it's like eight books in one. <laughs> yeah, it's like this is my whole year and maybe for a couple of years. But thank you so much for coming on. And I learned a lot. And cheers. Cheers. David, thank you. So thank you all for listening. Once again, you can find show notes on this on my newsletter at davidlebovitz.substack.com. I also have a website, davidlebovitz.com, where I have recipes and Paris tips, restaurants, and so forth. So you can find me at those two places. If you like this podcast, feel free to subscribe to it. I will see you next time. Bye-bye. <laughs>